Welcome to the NCBO podcast. This episode, we're going to be talking about charity governance. I'm Carl Wilding, and I'm the Director of Public Policy and Volunteering at NCVO, and I'm delighted to be joined by two guests. Dan Francis is NCVO's governance expert, and Dan has been one of the driving forces behind the new Refresh Governance Code. Hello, Dan. Hello. I'm also joined by Sarah O'Grady, who was until last year Chair of Amnesty, Amnesty International UK section, and who successfully led that organisation through uh, a challenging time. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Uh, In a moment, we'll hear more about the new charity governance code from Dan and what it might mean for your organisation. But first, why is there so much focus at the moment from media and politicians on governance? We asked a politician with an interest in charities for her view. I'm Jill Pitt-Keithley. I'm a member of the House of Lords, Baroness Pitt-Keithley. I've been in the House of Lords 20 years and I mostly focus on areas of my specialisms, uh, health, social care and the charity sector. I think recently we focused a lot more on how governance works in the charitable sector. And the reasons for that are perhaps fairly obvious um, because of all the scandal around kids' company and the difficulties around the so-called Olive Cook case in the fundraising uh, difficulties. I think politicians and the media have become much more likely to scrutinise charities because of those very high-profile cases. And perhaps it's something that politicians have a little more in their surgeries than they won't have uh, in the past. And certainly, as far as the media are concerned, it's a pretty good good story and, and one which will run and run. I recently chaired the House of Lords Select Committee on Charities, which was a very interesting experience. Um, It was a very good time to set it up when charities were feeling perhaps lacking in confidence in themselves. And we very much hope that the report we've produced has helped charities to feel more confident about the wonderful contribution they make to our society sustainability of charities and the way that its governance operates was very much a focus of the work that we did. The key recommendations are uh, some of them for government, of course, and they include recommendations about making trusteeship more desirable, uh, giving people time off for trusteeship, about recommendations about the Charity Commission and how it should operate, and recommendations about encouraging charities to form consortia and put them more on a level playing field uh, when it comes to the contract culture. That, of course, is particularly important for small charities. In the committee, we constantly heard how difficult it is to make rules and regulations for a charity which is a multi-million pound business and at the same time things which are applicable to small charities. So we hope that some of the things that we said about governance and for example about bringing back grants uh, into the picture will be uh, suitable for small charities. I think parliamentarians are going to be much more now calling for charities to make their trustee boards more diverse because the report talks a great deal about the lack of diversity among trustees. We also point up in the report that charities are rather behind the curve as far as digitization and use of social media are concerned and that having a trustee on your board who was a specialist in that area would be very useful. So I imagine parliamentarians will be monitoring that. But I 
think the whole area of charities, governance and how they interact with government is something that is becoming more and more important on the agenda of all parliamentarians and we have to make sure that we constantly make it so. Damn, Sarah. So more scrutiny of uh, governance, more awareness that some things have been going wrong. Does that reflect your experiences of how people are thinking about governance now? I certainly think it does. I mean, I think boards are very aware of what's going on in the wider world. And I think that actually none of these challenges are insurmountable and good boards are dealing with these things head on are thinking about how do we make ourselves more transparent more open and how do we meet these expectations and i hope the code helps organizations to do that and uh, i think from from my perspective i mean from my time as chair governance improving governance was one of my key priorities and the for me the code is particularly welcome because it makes it clear to uh, trustees what the expectations in their roles are and i hope that it will be um, empowering rather than daunting so uh, if charities are feeling more under the spotlight uh, are we giving enough attention to governance? Are we giving, uh, should we be giving more attention to governance as charities and trustees? Sarah? I think at the moment it feels, feels about right to me, the attention that there is. I think the key thing is to provide the uh, materials and support to enable trustees to fulfil their governance role confidently. And Dan, do you think we're getting more queries around governance and are we getting it right? Yeah, I think we we cert- we certainly are, and I think that we're getting more technical queries. We're getting pe- people particularly concerned about risk within their organisations, um, and, and and whether or not they're striking their balance between taking the risks they need to take, but also managing their risks effectively. And um, and I certainly see more questions around that. And some of the issues that Baroness Pitt Keithley talked about: poor fundraising. Um, organisations failing uh, 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 in a sort of a, a more fundamental way. Do you think some of these things come back to governance ultimately and not having good governance processes in place? Well, I certainly think that all of those stories have, have thrust governance into the spotlight with good, with good reason. Fundraising stories demonstrated trustees not uh, having oversight and control within their organisations. Um, oversight and control of third parties acting on behalf of the, the behalf of those charities um the, the the stories around chief exec and the interrelationship with with the board again demonstrating a, a kind of uh, not striking that balance between the the roles and responsibilities of each party so yeah i mean for, for me they they rightly put governance in the spotlight i think the test is how boards and we as trustees respond to those things Sarah, one of the things that came out uh, of those uh, problems that Jill Pitt-Keithley talked about was this issue that trustees didn't really know what was going on uh, in their own organisations. Is that a common problem? I think it does happen within some with some organisations and I think uh, the trustees need to make sure that they are getting the, the right timely information from the executive um, to enable them to maintain that oversight. And as a chair of a board, do you think there's a particular role for the chair in making sure that trustees do know what's going on in their name? Oh, absolutely. I think it's a key role um, of the the chair to provide the leadership and to make sure that trustees um, make informed strategic decisions. The chair also um, usually leads the relationship with the chief executive, and the chief executive is ultimately responsible for making sure that the board has 
the right information that they need. That's an interesting point for me because I think it says that governance is not just an issue for trustees, it's also an issue for the paired staff. I mean, uh, yeah, it is. And I, I just want to pick up on a, a point that um, Sarah made just now around the information the board receives is is ultimately something the board should make decisions over. You know, we've, I've done board observations or board governance reviews where, we, you know, in advance of that, we've asked for the information the board gets. And you get a pile of paper, you know, up to your shoulder about, you know, the stuff that the board receives in advance of a meeting. And actually, nobody can engage with that. A, volu- a volunteer who also has a full-time job, it's difficult. And actually, the way that information is presented, how it's accessible, and how people understand it is really, really key. A chair has an important role in having that conversation, I think, with the paid staff around, this is the information we want to receive, this is how we want it presented. Sarah, I think we've probably all been there where we've had a a 200-page board pack uh, for our meeting. Any practical tips from your experience on how to get that right? There needs to be some back to basics thinking about what is the board's role and what is the staff's role within the organisation. And the papers that come to the board should be focused on enabling them to fulfil their role of strategic decision making and oversight. So they shouldn't necessarily be the same sort of detail as, for example, in the senior management team's uh, papers, but there should be a focus um, which drives strategic decision making. Another problem that we got, Sarah, is uh, uh, we certainly had uh, charities complain to us that there's just so much guidance uh, that you have to go through, whether it's from the Charity Commission or the umbrella bodies. Again, in your experience, any practical tips about about how you you deal with uh, the large volume of uh, of guidance that, that's out there for trustees? Um, well, on a uh, if if you have if you're lucky enough to have paid staff, there should be somebody on the paid staff whose role and responsibility it would be to keep up to date with everything and and then digest it and circulate it and also consider how it might have an impact on the particular organisation. Um, in smaller charities, um, maybe think about somebody with on the trust board who might take the lead responsibility for that um, and. Um, NCVO um, do send out a monthly update digest. So as part of what the sector bodies have been doing to help address some of these problems, we published a new charity governance code, which we think is the essential tool for charities of all sizes. Dan's going to tell us a bit more about the new charity governance code. Dan, this isn't an entirely new code, but it's much changed. Can you tell us a bit about the history of the code, who's behind it, and how charities use it? Sure. So, I mean, the code is now in its third iteration, this, this, this version. Um, the last one was, to, was published in 2010. And as we've already heard, an awful lot has changed in the last five or seven years since, since then. Um, we've seen stories around charity fundraising. Um, we've had um, issues around management, chief executive pay, all of which which have put governance into the spotlight. And whilst this code isn't a direct response to those challenges, you, those, you, when, those who are familiar with the last code will recognise some of those changes bearing through in this new version. 
really conscious about this issue of lots of guidance and so on. So we almost uh, uh, start a new version of the Code of Governance with a little bit of trepidation. Dan, would you like to uh, tell us a bit about what's new uh, in, the, in the Code of Governance for Charities? Firstly, there's a whole new structure to this version of the, of the Code. It has seven principles, whereas the last had six, and it also introduces a foundation principle. Um, there's also a different approach to applying the code than there has been in the past. So we, we talk about apply or explain why you choose not to apply some of the, some of the principles uh, and the recommended practice. And the reason for that is that we have become quite a bit more prescriptive and perhaps more challenging in areas of this code than we were in the past, both for large and for smaller organisations. I'll just pick out, if it's okay, a couple of areas where I think that the code has changed quite significantly. And I, I suppose the first one to say is around the leadership principle, um, which which really emphasises the importance of the board recognising its role in leading the organisation, emphasises the role of the chair in, re- the re- in striking that right relationship between the chief executive and the board, um, managing the chief executive, and also mentions the board engaging in kind of the values of the organisation and setting the ethos of the way in which um, the organisation will operate. There's a new principle around diversity, which it emphasises two things, really. Firstly, the way in which we encourage people to join our boards, who we encourage to join our boards, focuses on ensuring a diversity of skills and lived experience. But it also crucially talks about the way in which our boards operate to ins- to, to make them more accessible and more uh, engaging to people that wouldn't otherwise um, consider joining um, joining boards. Sarah, diversity, that's a bit of a hot-button topic uh, in our sector at the minute. I think we're all a bit concerned about that. Again, from your experience, any practical tips of how you've thought about diversity and how to make boards reflective of the communities that they serve? So I think diversity on a board um, is incredibly important. And for me, um, it should be diversity of um, thinking backgrounds, skills and experience. When you're recruiting for trustees, um, I think it's important to cast the net as widely as possible. Um, And I think it's also important to think about whether or not um, you're making your board accessible to other people um, from more diverse backgrounds as well. So in terms of the times when you hold the meetings um, and the length of the meetings. Someone said to me once that uh, uh, too much trustee recruitment is done on the golf course. Is that something you recognise? Yeah, I think so. And and with often with good reason, you know, people know good people and it's right to bring those people onto boards. I think the challenge and the downside and drawback of that is that we tend to recruit in our own ilk. And, you know, my friends all have similar views to me and we tend to get on and so don't challenge each other that much. And so that's why it is important, as Sarah has kind of alluded to, to kind of go out, spread that net a little wider to think about how we actively recruit, um, whether that's advertising through, you know, the, the known ch- no, uh, advertising externally through known channels, or whether whether it is really targeting particular groups who we think actually we would really value their opinion on the board. So the new code and its approach to diversity, then it's more than just a tick box exercise. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And as I say, it talks about those 
uh, it talks about diversity and, and uh, diversity of the board in two respects. It talks about it in terms of how we ensure the the we recruit right and we um, and we reflect on the the gaps and back and gaps in background and skills that we have on the board but it also talks as sarah has said about how we actually make the boardroom more accessible how we make these trusteeship interesting opportunities for people from different backgrounds dan earlier on uh, you said that one of the new approaches to the new code was uh, that charities should comply with with what the code is saying or explain why they don't that sounds a bit scary to me for a small charity well, it's apply or explain. This isn't a uh. compliance document, and I think that is an important that is an important difference. This isn't a regulatory um, set of recommended practices. Um, actually, I think it should be a helping hand. It is to say that this there isn't an endpoint to the code. This is something which you will work towards. There'll be areas in here which you'll feel, yeah, okay, we're probably not at that yet. But this is an aspirational document. This stuff isn't compliance. And so it allows you to pick and choose the areas you want to focus on and then to think, how does this apply to my context? And if it doesn't, to explain why you choose not to. And, and to be clear, that explanation is only to yourself. It's internally to your board to say, actually, we think we need a slightly bigger board than the, than the code recommends. Actually, we think we should, uh, we, we should have an a kind of a governance review less regularly or more regularly than the code recommends. So charities range from turnovers of hundreds of millions of pounds where they have lots of paid staff to my local Rotary Club, which is entirely volunteers. Does one code fit all of those organisations if you have to apply or explain? Well, that was one of the major challenges with this, with, with writing a document for, um, for, for the whole of the sector. Um, there are two versions of the recommended practice that are available to download through the, the website. One for large organisations over a million pounds, and then or, or turnover, and then those with a with 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 a turnover less than a million. Um, and and there is slight differences within those recommended practices, which are designed to be tailored towards smaller organisations. Uh, from my perspective, I think the principles and a lot of our consultation that we ran through the code process that we when we were developing it we spoke to over 200 organizations we ran events around the country and the feedback was actually the principles are enduring regardless of whether you are a small local group or whether you are uh, you know a uh, a multi-million pound national organization it's the way you implement those things that's different so dan for busy trustees who probably might not still be convinced by our arguments for why they should read the code if there was just one thing that they should take from the code, what would it be? Well, I think it's that, you know, trusteeship is a serious role. There are responsibilities that come along with being a trustee and that the code is designed as a tool to help you achieve those objectives um, and, and become a better trustee and board as a result. And uh, a very important practical question, where can people get it from? Um, www.charitygovernancecode.org and Sarah, as someone who's chaired boards and who, who the code would be aimed at, is the one thing that you would uh, suggest people could take from it? For me, the key thing is that the code is aimed at uh, supporting organisations achieve their organisational purpose and all the principles point towards that and provide guidance on how it can be achieved. <laughs>
So with a pair of governance experts here today, we thought we'd make them work a bit. We've asked NCVO members to send us in some of their questions around governance and Dan and Sarah have agreed uh, to answer them. So first up is a question about culture change between uh, trustees who are already on the board and new trustees have, have joined recently in a sense sometimes of, well, we've very much always done things this way. How do you deal with those periods of change where you have new trustees? For me, I think this is really emphasises the importance of building the board as a team, getting people together uh, outside perhaps of the boardroom and spending some time remembering why it is you come together as a board, remembering that, you, you know, actually what is our objective here as a, as a group, whether we've been on the board for uh, 5, 10, 15 years or whether we are brand new, setting some clear objectives as a group. I guess a related question is, someone asked us, how do you ensure that you keep consistent in terms of your governance practices and your, and I guess ensuring that your decisions are, are consistent with each other? Uh, again, Sarah, can I, any practical tips? I think it's um, very important to get some of the governance um, structures in place, so clear board role descriptions, for example, so that existing board members and new board members know what their role and responsibilities are. And Dan, is there anything that the code can help us with in terms of board effectiveness on, on these sorts of issues? Yeah, I think I think there's come something in there around the idea of succession planning, thinking about departures before they actually happen, perhaps staggering. Although the board, the board, the the, the governance code mentions the fact that you know you should have turnover on a board. It says that should be in a planned way, and I think that you know a third of the board leaving every three years and uh, uh, perhaps and having nine-year term limits with those kind of three-year rotations kind of makes sense. Again, apply or explain is the is the methodology applied to the code, but essentially planning always for the departure, talking about change on the board, I think is a really important um, takeaway from the code. One of the other questions that uh, we've been asked is, uh, new trustees find it difficult to ask uh, the silly or the obvious questions uh, around things like finance and so on. How can we, uh, how can we support trustees to, to ask those obvious but, but important questions? I, it's amazing how many times I've sat in a boardroom where a conversation goes a particular way, and then uh, it, it only takes um, it, it only takes one person to raise their hand and say, "Actually, I don't understand what's going on." For for half the room to say, "Oh, I also don't understand what's happening here," and everyone just kind of looks at the floor a little bit. I think it's really important to be on, to be completely open, honest, and upfront about things that you don't understand as a trustee. I do it all of the time in my board meeting, probably a little too often, um, saying I don't actually get what the purpose of this paper is. And that honesty allows you then to have a more genuine discussion about what the issues are, have it explained to you, so that you can fulfil your duties as a trustee. Um, without without it you get some kind of dangerous um, decisions being made on where, where trustees really don't understand the context within which they're making a decision. And Sarah, I'm guessing the chair has a specific role there in helping new trustees on board. And Absolutely. I completely agree with what um, Dan has said. Uh, for me, what may be perceived or thought of as a silly question actually can be the most insightful. Um, and even if it's a matter which has been discussed by trustees previously, can actually take them back to that decision and re reflect reflect on it um, and I think the the chair's role is key in creating the climate within the boardroom within which um, these issues can be raised these questions 
I have a final question for you uh, that we've been asked, and this is a tough one. How do we deal with difficult trustees? Uh, and, and I guess at its extreme, what do we do if a trustee uh, uh, really needs to leave the board? I would hope that the code will help people in this respect to have some more honest conversations. One of the things the, the, the code mentions is that board review on a regular basis, an opportunity perhaps for people to talk about um, what works well and what doesn't work well. There's also that emphasis on turnover, which I think can be used to start some of those kind of conversations in a more constructive uh, constructive way. Um, there also, if it's, if it's genuine breakdown, and uh, then I think trustees need to have honest conversations and need to kind of recognize that sometimes those those that sometimes it's right to have the have those discussions although they aren't easy so uh we've come to the end of today's podcast so all that's left for me to do is first of all thank sarah grady and dan francis our resident governance experts today to say to you that uh, if you're interested in the conversation we've had about the Charity Code of Governance, you can download that from charitygovernancecode.org. And then finally, if you need advice or support from us at NCVO, just search for us uh, on the web. If you search for governance at NCVO and you will find uh, lots of advice and support, including that monthly update on things happening in the world of governance that Dan mentioned earlier before. Thank you and see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.